as we're diving into God's word this morning, as we're trying to remember all of these different things, that's actually one of the things that we're going to focus on today. God calls his people throughout his word to remember how he has worked in the past. And so as we're picking up this morning in Genesis, go ahead and open your Bible to Genesis chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible there in front of you, there should be one in the back of the pew there. It's the black book there in the back uh, that has, it, it, if you need it, by the way, if you don't have a good Bible that you can read at your house, you are more than welcome to take that one with you. Uh, we provide others. If you want one that looks a little bit nicer, but the print's a little bit smaller on, let me know because I've got some extras in my office, Okay. So this morning, we're picking back up with the story of Abram, and we're looking at the Abrahamic covenant. Now, as we're doing this, we've been seeing God do some unique things in Abram's life. A guy that we know right now is called Abram, but one day, God, here down a few weeks from now, God's going to change his name to Abraham. Uh, so he is the one that, that God is going to bless with a child that's going to become a great nation, that's going to eventually possess this land. We've seen all of these promises that God has been making over the last few weeks. But remembering what God does, as we're going to see this morning, is what's going to give us confidence to trust him both today and in the future. We're going to see this play out in Abraham's life. Now, the chapter starts somewhat abruptly. Look with me here at verse 1. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Now, this just kind of is a cold open, right? Like it's all of a sudden God's like, hey, guess what? I'm your shield. As God's opening this, like the other Old Testament prophets, God speaks to Abram in a vision. Now, the, uh, the Old Testament elsewhere identifies Abram as a prophet. We don't often think of him in that role. But this is how God's speaking to him and showing to him. He's assuring Abram of his presence and the protection that God would provide. Now, the way that God starts off is interesting because it's very similar to the way that God starts off in the book of Exodus chapter 3. Who, by the way, let's think for just a second, who wrote the book of Genesis? We, we hold to the conservative view that says that who said wrote it, wrote it. So who wrote this book? Moses, okay? When did Moses write this book? Well, Moses wrote this book at some point after God's people were being drawn out of Egypt and they were in the wilderness and they're wandering. So one of the things that, that's fascinating to do is look at the way that God has Moses record these accounts. He's not embellishing details or, or anything like that, but you know, I can't describe to you everything that takes place in a given story. I'm gonna leave some details out and I'm gonna include some depending on what I'm trying to tell you. You know that because if you've ever gotten into an automobile accident, if it's your fault, uh, when the officer asks you what happened, there may be some details you left out, like the fact that you dropped the cassette tape and you were reaching over into the floorboard to get it, or that you had looked down and you were checking your text and didn't realize that that person in front of you had stopped. You may not include that detail, right? You may conveniently leave that out. But if it's the other guy's fault, you're gonna give every single piece of information you can. I saw him, he bent over and he was reaching over on the floorboard. I don't know what he was getting, but I know that he wasn't paying attention. You're gonna include every detail. So depending on the purpose, you might include different details, right? In the same kind of way, God is allowing Moses to be able to, to recount these stories in such a way. They're showing God's people who are going through this massive event of going out of Egypt and into the wilderness. As God's showing all that, he's showing them he's the same God who's always been working. So what we find here is just like God showed up to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and answers a question that we didn't have Moses ever asking, because God's first words in Exodus chapter 3, uh, after he introduces himself to Moses and the whole burning bush idea and tells him who he is, God says, I surely have seen the suffering of my people. Well, Moses never asked out loud, 
God, do you even see what's going on? Obviously, he'd asked it in his heart. God addressed it. Here, in the same kind of way, when God comes to Abram, he's speaking to him as addressing a concern that seems to be lying in Abram's heart. Looks like he's afraid. God's made some incredible promises. God's promised that he's going to have this massive amount of offspring, but he's old and he doesn't have any kids. God's promised that he's going to take care of giving him this whole land, but he barely even has any of it. In fact, at this point, doesn't even own any of it. So Abram's sitting there going, God, can you really do this? He doesn't ask it out loud here, although he does a little bit later. He gets into in this response. But the way that God responds to Abram in this passage is to assure him that he's capable of doing what Abram needs because of his faithfulness in the past. We're going to see Abram ask two main questions of God, and as he asks these two main questions, we're going to see God respond in two ways that I think form a pattern for us. While for Abram, some of these things were still in the future, for us, we've seen how God was going to fulfill a lot of it. And not only that, but the Israelites who first read Genesis after Moses wrote it were actually living out the very events that God said here. They were seeing firsthand how God's work in the past formed the foundation for their trust of him in now and in the future. And that's what I want you to see this morning. We're going to see this in two main areas. First, the way that God has created. And then number two, we're going to see the way that God has worked through covenants. Now, as we get into this chapter, some of the stuff that happens at the end is really, really weird to us. But as we look at it and understand this picture, we see one of the most beautiful symbols in all of the Old Testament, okay? So let's dive in and let's look at this. First, as God begins reassuring Abram, don't be afraid, I'm your shield, your reward will be very great. Verse two, but Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me? Since I'm childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram continued, look, you've given me no offspring. So a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, the one who comes to you, or one who comes from your own body will be your heir. Now, right after this, God's going to call Abram to remember his work in creation. Remember his work in creation. But let's start here. Abram's first question centered around how God was actually going to give him the descendants. Remember, he and Sarah were past childbearing age. They'd never had kids. That meant that if Abram died, it would go to the, the oldest one in his house that had been born as one of his slaves, this guy, Eliezer of Damascus. By the way, there's all kinds of cool things that God's doing there, uh, but we won't get into that because we've already got too much to cover, okay? There's just, dude, this is what's so fun about my job is I get to sit down and dig into the weeds of this stuff all week long. The hard part is then I got to figure out what I get to tell you and what you get to look up on your own. Um, if you want a great perspective on this, I would encourage you to get a book that is really heavy. Um, and like probably I have the digital copy. I imagine physically it's really heavy too. Um, but it's called The Pentateuch as Narrative by Salehammer. Um, it's a very fascinating way of reading through the book of Genesis. All right. Anyway, as we're looking through this, we're seeing that, that God had said that he was going to have these children, but all of this is going to go to his servant, Eliezer. He's like, God, what are you doing? This doesn't match with what the promise was they've been giving him. So the first question then is, how on earth is God going to keep his promise when he hasn't given Abram any children? Now, it's interesting because there's no rebuke in this passage. God doesn't rebuke Abram for this. It makes you think about the two miraculous births that we see around Christmas time we talk about. If you remember, there, there was John the Baptist's dad, who was kind of like Abram, too old to have kids, and had never had one. And the angel says, you guys are going to have a child. And he says, well, how's that going to work? Paraphrased loosely, right? 
and the angel makes him mute. He can't speak until John is born. Well, then you fast forward to Mary. God tells Mary that she's gonna have a child and it sounds like she asks a similar question. She says, well, how can this be? I've never been with a man. And God doesn't strike her mute, but says the Holy Spirit's gonna take care of it. So what's the difference between those two questions? Well, my guess would be the attitude behind it. See, Abram is legitimately asking, God, how's this gonna work? There's a difference between how's this going to work and, well, how's that going to work, right? So Abram here, it seems to say, God, Eliezer is going to be the heir of my house, and there's no rebuke here because this is a genuine question. This isn't coming out of doubt. This is, God, I just, I don't understand. And, and there's no rebuke here. So then God reaffirms this promise in verse four. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. So he's making it crystal clear. Abram is going to actually have a son. Still not a lot of detail about how God's gonna do that, but this is going to be an actual child he is, right? So as he reaffirms that promise and says, this is what's going to happen, he takes Abram outside and gives him something to rest that promise on. Look at verse five. It says, he took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said to them, your offspring will be that numerous. Now, for some of you, you've lived in town your whole life. And so you're like, so he's going to have what, like 20, right? If you walk outside my house, I live in town and we got lights everywhere. And so, and unless it's like a super crystal clear night, you can't hardly see anything. So how many of you have ever been somewhere that is truly dark. You guys ever had that? I, I've had that privilege when we've been in Zimbabwe. Usually there's too much dust in the air for us to be able to see clearly, but I remember one particular night, the dust was gone, the, no humidity. It was unbelievable to look up and just see. It almost made the sky gray because there were so many stars. There was not a chance. Obviously, it's the Southern Hemisphere. So I'm not good at what's where anyway. I'm not really great with that here, but a, a really bad there but I couldn't make out constellations because they were all just dazzlingly bright. That's what Abram would have seen. Light pollution wasn't a thing in Abram's day. So when God takes Abram outside, if you want some fun, by the way, dig into the the pictures that have been coming from the James Webb Space Telescope that NASA just got up and going. They're finding galaxies that are a billion times dimmer than we can see with our own eyes. It's mind-boggling to look up and see these things. And so what God does to ground his promise to Abram is he takes him outside to his creation and says, if I've done that, I can keep my promise. You see, the Bible makes it very clear that, that as God created these, this world that he has made, this world he sustains, it, it shows us who he is in some ways. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Did anybody see the sunrise this morning? It was right before the cloud cover got so thick and everything turned solid gray. The whole world turned this peachy, pinky, orangey, color over where the sun was rising. And it was just this absolutely gorgeous sunrise to see this morning. And God says that the heavens are declaring the glory of God. That's not just refraction, although God's the one who developed light to do what it does. So as it refracts that way, as you see these colors, as you see the sky, this is the God who's making the faithful promise to Abram, the God who created and sustained all of this. 
who Colossians tells us holds all things together. Elsewhere, Isaiah would say it this way. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26. Look up and see who created these. He brings out the stars by number. He calls all of them by name because of his great power and strength. Not one of them is missing. You see, the faithfulness of God in the past forms the foundation for our trust in what he can do in the future. Abram was sitting there saying, God, I don't understand. I, I, I don't see how this can happen. It, it's too late for us to have kids. Eliezer's going to be my heir. You said this would happen, but, but, and God says, just look, just, just look for just a minute. Have you ever stared at the stars long enough that you start to see them in 3D? It's not like, it's not the actual depth, but it almost looks like you can start seeing. There's this beauty and this majesty. Now, I get it. It's winter, it's cold, it's cloudy, it's rainy. But could I challenge you to do something this week? At some point this week, take time to dig into the world that God has made, right? Maybe there will be a clear night, I don't know, uh, for us to be able to, to get out and, and see the stars, but it's probably be cloudy most this week. Look at the intricacies of the trees in your yard. See the colors that he paints on the sunrise and the sunset if we get a break in the clouds. Get a bird feeder. Yvonne Baker got me started on this during the pandemic. I started it and she got me hooked on it. We've got a bird feeder in the back that brings out dozens of goldfinches over the course of the day. We've got this gorgeous big old woodpecker who makes a mess of the bird feeder. But God knows all of those Yes, I'm, I turned 40 this week, all right? So I'm old and I can sit and look at birds. Put me out to pasture, that's all right. God made that. It's a goldfinch for crying out loud. A few months ago, they were almost brown. Now, as we're getting a little closer to spring, you start seeing the color return. God encoded that in, in this tiny little bird that just doesn't matter. Look at his glory in creation as you scrape your windshield off this morning. See if it's one of those where the frost makes that cool pattern where it freezes and it crystallizes as it does. Look at your kids and see what God's done in forming them and growing them even as adults. As you look in the mirror and you see the wrinkles or the age spots or the things you don't like, think about the God who knit you together in your mother's womb, who knew that that's what your body would do. He makes your body work at all. He's shown his power all throughout his creation. So if you're doubting what he can do now, just look around you. Take a look at his creation. That's what he did with Abram. He said, I know. Look, I can make your descendants as numerable as the stars. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean necessarily that there's going to be a physical descendant of Abraham for every single star in the sky. God's saying, your descendants are going to be so prolific that you can't even count them. We see, by the way, in the New Testament that those of us who follow Christ now, those of us who put our faith and trust in Jesus become spiritual heirs of a lot of this promise. And so we get to be a part of this. We're a part of that seed of Abraham that God promised those of us who follow Christ. We didn't totally replace his physical seed, all right, for those who are like, oh, this is me. No. We'll talk over coffee, all right. But we remember his work in creation. When we see what he's done, Listen, if God can call the stars out every single day, what could he not do? J.K. Chesterton, a great theologian, posited that maybe 
you know, we watch the flowers open every morning. And we think about, like, you ever been around a little kid who finds something that they like doing, and they'll just do it over and 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 over. And as an adult, you're like, will you move on? Like, this is not funny anymore. Yeah, it's really cute. Can we find a different episode of Bluey to watch, please? Like, but kids have this ability to delight in the same thing over and over again. Chesterton said, what if God has that kind of joy where he opens the flowers every morning out of his own joy? Remember his work in creation because it gives you the ability to rest in his faithfulness in the future. The God who causes the sun and moon and stars and planets to rotate together and sustain life can certainly work in the thing that has you so afraid. Now we're gonna skip over verse six and not because it's not important, we're gonna get back to it at the end. So Abram's first question is, how on earth am I gonna have these descendants? And God doesn't really answer. He said, you are gonna have a son. It's gonna come from your body, but don't worry, I've got this. So we've got a second question that Abram comes up with. Verse seven, God also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Verse eight, but Abram said, but Lord God, how can I know that I'll possess it? Now here's where it gets weird. I want to read the whole thing to you and then we're going to come back and explain it, okay? Because it's an absolutely beautiful picture. He said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to them, to him, cut them in half, and laid the pieces opposite each other, but he didn't cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that doesn't belong to them and be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge that nation they serve, and afterwards they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Verse 17, when the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring, from the brooks of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hettites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Now, what on earth is all that about? We've got animals getting cut in half. We've got a flaming thing and a smoking thing going between the animals. It's a very weird picture. But let's get to the vision first. So as God tells Abram to take these animals, we don't know for sure why he said three years old. Could be because they would kind of be at peak usefulness at that point. Like, uh, you know, they're fully mature, but they still got a lot of life left in them. They're useful around the farm. And so he has them slaughter these three-year-old animals. We don't know for sure why. He cuts them in half and puts the halves opposite each other and then sits there and waits. And he drives off birds of prey that are coming down to try to eat the carcasses. And as he sits there and he waits, the sun begins to set and God causes him to fall into a deep sleep. And in that deep sleep, it says that he, he starts feeling terror and darkness. Now, it's interesting because that's very similar to the way that God's people responded when God descended on Mount Sinai. So so we see here as God's presence is coming to make this covenant. By the way, here's the thing. We're shifting from a promise to a covenant. There's a difference. So far, God has been saying, this is what I'm going to do. 
But in making it a covenant, he's putting a symbol with it, okay, that says this is the symbol of the promise that I'm making. Now, the closest that we do with that is, is marriage for us. Right When I got married, I stood up in front of the church and I told the Lord, I told my family, I told Samantha, I told everybody that was there that I was pledging to love her and to honor her and to cherish her for the rest of my life. And as a symbol of that, we exchanged rings. Those rings are a picture of the covenant that she and I made, okay? Now, this covenant, this doesn't make me married, but it shows everybody that I am. So what God's doing here is a little bit even more than that. But he's making this a covenant. He's giving Abram a symbol of of what's going on. And as he does, he does something beautiful. First, it starts with the terror and darkness that that Abram experiences. And he gives him the promise. He says, look, your family is going to possess this land, but it's not going to be right yet. They're going to go somewhere else. They're going to be enslaved for 400 years, but they are going to come back here, and I am going to give them this land. And by the way, you're going to be okay. You're going to live out a good life. You're going to die in peace, okay? So God affirms that promise, gives him some detail. Remember, the first people that are reading this, that this, they had obviously had kept these stories up and had been sharing these stories, but as God had Moses record them down into the written word of God, what we see is that's the very first people who are reading it are the people who are living it. They're able to look at it and say, God made this promise to Abram 430 years ago that he would draw us out of Egypt, and that's what he's done. This is exactly what God had said. So they're looking at the faithfulness of God in the past as they're actually living it out, walking there in the wilderness on their way to the promised land that God had given and made this promise of. So they're seeing the faithfulness of God in the past as the foundation for their trust in the future. So there's this beautiful moment. Now, we know how this goes. We know that God keeps his promise and the people get into the land. There are times when those covenants are conditional and we see that the the people of Israel don't always honor the Lord. They get removed from the land. We believe that there's still something left for the people of Israel there in the physical land. I I just, I, I wrestle with end time stuff because I'll be honest, it looks like there's still aspects of this promise that God hasn't fully completed yet. And so I'm looking forward to seeing what that looks like when it comes time for it. But as he's fulfilled these promises, he also gives this really unusual symbol to us. You have these animals cut in half. You've got this smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Now, again, for these guys, there's a lot about this that would be completely real, completely applicable. They, they were literally seeing this take place. How did God lead his people in the wilderness? Anybody remember? Yeah. Exodus 13, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day and a pillar of fire to give them light at night. So now we don't necessarily know, the Bible doesn't give a clear definition of exactly what's taking place with, with why, the, why the smoking fire pot, why the flaming torch, but what it looks like to us is most likely this is the symbol of the presence of God that would follow Israel or lead Israel all throughout the wilderness. You've got the pillar of cloud represented by the smoking fire pot. You've got the, the pillar of fire that's represented by the flaming torch. We're seeing the symbols of the presence of God. They're given to Abraham that now this generation that's reading this is actually living out and seeing. But here's where it gets even better. It says that those two objects passed through the halves of these animals, passed back and forth between them. That's a really weird thing. Here's what would happen. In those days, if you and I were at war, and I was the king and you were the king, 
when it came time for us to, to ratify a treaty, what we would do is we would take animals, we would cut them in half and lay them opposite of each other. And then as you and I ratified the covenant we were making, the peace treaty we were making, we would pass between the halves of those animals. What we were doing essentially was making a blood oath that if I violate the terms of this treaty, make me like one of these animals. That's the picture. So here you have these two halves of the animals. You have God's presence going between them. But what's missing? Abram. There's no mention of Abram going between that. See, if you and I were at war, you and I would walk together between this because what we're doing is we're saying we're both held to the terms of this. So if either you break it or if I break it, then the punishment will be on us. But what does God do when he makes the promise to Abram? He passes through and has Abram stand back and walk. That meant that God put the weight of this covenant on himself. You see it? You see what he's doing? You see, as God's sealing this covenant with Abram, he's doing so much here. One of the things is just making this a covenant. He's making this an oath. The writer of Hebrews would talk about it and say, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and for a, a confirming oath ends every dispute. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that to, through two unchangeable things, number one, in which it's impossible for God to lie, and number two, he's already talked about his unchangeable purpose in the last verse, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. It enters into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. This is a picture of the temple where God's presence was dwelling in a way that it didn't dwell anywhere else on earth. And he said, because of the promise God has made that's been fulfilled through Jesus Christ, we have this hope anchoring us in the very presence of God that Jesus has entered there on our behalf for, as a forerunner. He's become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So God made an oath. He swore by himself because there's no one greater for him to swear by. He confirmed it by his unchanging purposes, his unfailing promises. He said, I will do this. That is our anchor that God keeps his promise. God keeps his covenant. It's behind the curtain. It's through the curtain to the holiest place of the temple where God's presence dwelt like nowhere on earth. Yes, God was making this problem to Abram and to his descendants, but the New Testament, as I said, makes it clear that those who put their faith in Christ share in part of that promise. Now again, have you picked up on what he's foreshadowing here? I hope you have. I wrestled all week with how to, how to say this. You see, when God made this covenant with Abram, the promise he made was that if the covenant would break, was broken, he would pay the penalty, right? God has and always will keep up his end of the bargain, but time and time again, we have rejected him. And because of that, there is a penalty to be paid. You and I cannot be right with God because we've turned our back and done what we wanted instead of what God created us to do. Yet he was the one to take the penalty for us. 
He was the one who, instead of splitting a cow and a goat and and these animals and walking between, he was the one who would allow his own body to be broken and his blood to be shed as a symbol of the new covenant. That's what we're getting ready to take as we go through this. As we go to the table here in just a minute for the Lord's Supper or for communion, this bread here is going to symbolize for us the body of Christ that was broken for us. And this cup celebrates for us the blood of Jesus that was shed on our behalf. These are the signs of the covenant for us, the one who was rent asunder because of us, the one who was cut in half for us. These are the pictures of the promise for us. This is the covenant that God's made. He's made it available through the death of his son. So what are we supposed to do with all this? Well, verse six, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, some scholars say this is likely just reminding us that even though Abram's asking questions that seem like doubt, he really did believe the Lord. He really did know. My question for us then today is, is this how you respond to the faithfulness of God? Look at what he's done in creation. Do you believe in him? First off, for those who are here and you're not sure if you follow Jesus or not, this is where you start. This is the beginning place for you, is you have to recognize this is the God who loved you so much that instead of letting you take your own penalty, he died in your place. He was buried and raised so that we could have new life. And so he calls me to surrender to him and say, God, I can't save myself. I can't do this on my own. And so I want to enter into this covenant that you've made through your body and your blood. I want to follow you to believe him. And that belief is credited as righteousness. Romans 4 gets into a lot of detail about that. But as I look across the room, I imagine a lot of the folks in here, you've had that time where you've put that saving faith in Jesus, that you've trusted in him, you've surrendered to him. He's drawn you to himself and you know it. Are you still trusting him today? Are you like Abram, those sitting there going, God, I, I just don't, I don't see how this could work out. You know, I often think about when we, when we give these kind of applications, we talk about the big stuff. Like, you know, you've got some kind of big life-altering decision about your career or about a relationship or, or about something like that. And those are certainly in view here. But, but, you know, most days we don't have that. Most days life is just life. Are you trusting God with Today? with what you're going to have for lunch, with all those things you need to get done before you go to work tomorrow? Are you trusting God in that? Or has the drudgery, the day in, day out of life caused you to lose sight of it? If you're struggling with trusting him today, I'd encourage you, remember his work in creation. Take some time this week to look at what God's made. Then, Remember his work through his covenants. That's what we're going to do here in just a minute. As we take the Lord's Supper, this is the symbol that God's given us of the covenant that he made. This is what Jesus sat down with his disciples the night before he was betrayed, and he took the cup and he took the bread. He blessed them and said, this is the symbol of the covenant that I'm making with you. So today, if you're in a place where where you're struggling with trusting God for today and for the future, let partaking this supper be an act of expressing that trust for you. 
of saying, God, today, I know you have done this in the past. I know you've been faithful. I know you've been gracious. And so I choose today to trust in all you've done. So here's what I want us to do. I want to give you a moment to just take time and do business with God. The Bible tells us that we're not supposed to take the Lord's Supper without examining our hearts first. So I want to give you just a minute. I'm going to invite Kirk to come up here and just play some music in the background to to let you have a second just to, to think about, is there anything right now that I need to confess, that I need to repent of? Do I need to to again, just declare my trust in the Lord so that I can take the Lord's Supper with a clear conscience. And then after a season of reflection, then I'm going to pray for it. We're gonna pass out the the bread first. When you take the bread, you're gonna hold it in your hand and we'll take it together. So don't eat until I say, do this and remember of me. Remember it's of me, okay? We'll take it together. So you just hold on to it till I tell you. And then we'll pass the cup around. In each of these, we're going to take time as the elements are being passed just to reflect on the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. So why don't you just bow your head and close your eyes for just a minute. I'll invite our ushers to come forward who are going to be helping us with the Lord's Supper. You guys can come forward and have a seat. Just do business with God there where you're at. Prepare your heart to take the supper together. Father, we thank you that you are faithful. You've been faithful to fulfill all the covenants you have made throughout history. You have worked time and time again to show yourself worthy. As we prepare our hearts then to partake of the Lord's Supper together, we ask that you would allow these to be a symbol for us to remind us of what Jesus has done as his body has been broken and his blood has been shed on our behalf. As we do, we ask that you would be honored to let this be an expression of our trust in you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.